Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Psalm 5110. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Many of us here have likely known a time in our lives when we were apart from the Lord. We were in rebellion, running from God, or maybe we had committed a grievous sin, and in shame we hid ourselves from Him. But God, who loses none for whom His Son died, turned our hearts back to Him and caused us to cry out to Him for restoration. We needed repentance then, and God gave it. But too often in life outside of the muck and mire, we are not mindful of our need for it now. The same exercise of grace working to restore us then is required daily. We long for faith then that we might come back to Christ, but only the same faith can bring us to Jesus now. At that time, we desired a word of comfort from the Most High to end our fears. But if we recall even the past 24 hours of our life, we should discover that we need it even now. We battle sin every day of our lives. Our flesh and blood are as much in the way of our devotion to God now as they were in those times of prodigal living. Each day, every morning, and every evening is a time for needed renewal. This is why the Word speaks of His mercies being new every morning. Daily we need new mercies. Such truth, such reality, when realized, can leave us feeling weak and powerless. And we are, apart from the Holy Spirit. So let our personal weakness then be an argument for earnest prayer to God for help. King David, when he felt himself to be powerless, did not fold his arms or close his lips, but he hastened to the mercy seat with the cry of, Renew a steadfast spirit within me. We cannot let the doctrine of our depravity, the fact that we unaided can do nothing, cause us to slumber. Rather, it should be a goad in our side to drive us with sincerity to our strong helper. Daily let us plead with God as though we pleaded for our very life. Lord, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is not a one-time call that we had at our conversion. It is a call of repentance even now. Daily is the frequency Jesus said we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. Every day is the today that we hear his voice and must humble our hearts before him. So if you're willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins to God. The text for today is out of Matthew, um, chapter 7. And uh, it's right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's a, the text is going to be from Matthew 7, 24 through, oh, I can't read it, 27, I believe. <laughs> All right. So this is a text that has sparked a Sunday school song, right? The wise man built his house upon the rock. 
The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rain came tumbling down. We all know the hand motions, right? <laughs> and all that. The rains came down, the floods came up. Okay? And then the foolish man built his house upon the sand. So, cute kid song, but there are some great truths in that song. Um, things that, that we want to know. Things that come right from this scripture. Here, this passage. Um, and uh, so, very important for us to pull from this text. And this text is right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, to give an illustration of what it means to stand on firm rock. Um, I want to talk just briefly here about a particular covenanter. Okay? So many of the Puritans and the Scottish covenanters in England and Scotland suffered greatly at the hands of the royal families of Tudor and then of the Stuarts during the 16th and 17th centuries. And these godly saints, the Puritans and the Covenanters, stood firmly on the foundation of Christ, which you find right here in this text. They stood firmly on the foundation of Christ, giving testimony that he, Christ, is over the earthly kings. And get that, Christ is over the earthly kings and queens, and that they owe allegiance and obedience to Christ Jesus. Okay? That's a big thing for a king to swallow. For many of them, the testimony that they gave of that, that Christ is king over the kings of England and Scotland, it didn't set well with the royal family. And as such, a number of these Puritans and Covenanters were persecuted by Bloody, Bloody Mary, by Elizabeth, by James the Sixth and the First, Charles the First, his son, Charles the Second, his grandson. The assertion by the Covenanters was that Christ was king and had all authority, and earthly kings were subject and under Jesus' authority. Most of these pastors were peace-loving men. Most of these pastors that were persecuted for preaching the gospel to their people, to, for preaching the authority of Christ to their people, were peace-loving men, peacemakers that we find in the Beatitudes, that sought to live at peace with all men as much as is possible. But they also would not compromise their faith because they knew that the foundation of their faith was firmly on the rock, which is Christ. The foundation of their faith is firmly on the rock, which is Christ. And they were building their faith on that rock and not the shifting sands of unbelief. James Guthrie who was pastor of the Church of the Holy Rood in Stirling, was just such a man. He had written to King Charles II in 1650 after Charles, and if you know the Charleses, Charles I was the Charles that got beheaded, and then his son, they called him back. And Scotland actually put him on the throne and crowned him on the throne in 1650. And so after Charles and, and the Covenanters had, why they're called the Covenanters is because they signed a covenant. The National Covenant in 1638. And they all signed that basically, exactly that, the king is subject to the authority of Christ. All right? There's a lot more to it, but get, just have that big picture in your mind. And so King Charles, when he came in in 1652 and, to uh, Scotland and they crowned him at, at Scone, um, he agreed to the covenants. He agreed to abide by that covenant. The National Covenant. 
said that he was under the authority of that, said that he was under the authority of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then, very shortly, after being crowned, he broke covenant. He broke his oath to uphold the national covenant of Scotland, and he began to uh, reach his power out. Well, James Guthrie had written that the king, and he had written to the king, that the king was the lawful civil authority, but that in regards to church matters, only church courts could properly judge doctrine and ministerial calling. Well, Charles believed in the divine right of kings. He'd gotten that from his grandfather, James. Divine right of the kings, that the king is the man. He's over the church and state. Okay? And so he believed in that divine right of kings and was infuriated by these upstart pastors that would write such such a thing to him, the king. So, ten years later, when Charles II gained the English throne, and there was a whole lot of English civil war happening all there in that ten years and all of those things, and finally, they call the king back. So ten years later... 1660, when Charles II gained the English throne, Charles was now seeking revenge. He hated the Presbyterians. He hated the Covenanters. He hated the Puritans. They had beheaded his father. So Charles was seeking revenge. Guthrie and 11 other pastors, trying to reach out to the king, wrote a letter to the king affirming their support of him as king and that they wished him only to be like David. A man after God's own heart. Only to be like King Solomon, full of wisdom. And only to be like King Josiah, tender-hearted and humble before God. So they reached out to the king and wrote these things in a letter. And King Charles rewarded them by having them all arrested. On the day, so they went through the trial. And they declared that these covenanters needed to die. They need to be killed. They're usurping the king's authority. And so on the day of James Guthrie's execution at the grass market where he was going to be hung, he stood at the scaffold and said to the crowd, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and one of the most unworthy men that has ever preached the gospel. But I do believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. I have preached salvation through his name, I commend to you the riches of his free grace, for the only way there can be for the only way you can be saved is through faith in Christ. I would not exchange this scaffold where he is about to be hung for the palace and mitre of the greatest prelates in Britain. O my holy one, I shall not die, but live. Now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That is the faith of a man who is resting surely on the foundation of Christ, the rock. That is also not the faith that one would exhibit whose faith was built upon sand. Because the sand provided no foundation, but when tempest came, it washed away the house. Guthrie became one of the great and first martyrs of the Covenanters, 
as Charles II sought to drive Presbyterianism and Covenanters from the land of Scotland and to make Guthrie an example to all these Covenanters that he hated so much. They took his head, put it on a spike at the Netherbow Gate in Edinburgh, a city wall where it stayed for the next 28 years. Until one young man climbed up to the top, and this is, this is a big building, climbed to the top and took it down. Have that kind of faith in your mind. He's solid on the rock. He's solid on the rock, of which is Christ, as we go to the text for today. So let us read the text. It says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for giving us your word here this day. Lord, we pray that the meditations of our heart would be fixed upon it. Oh Lord, and that we would understand this word better so that we may apply it to our life in our day to the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the text here, and really beginning back in, in verse 713, is the conclusion of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so this is right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot that goes on before, right? And so hopefully you have read that before, and at least have some understanding of what that uh, entails. And Jesus concludes here um, with examples of contrasts between faith and unbelief. So if you go back to 7.13, he talks about two gates, the narrow gate and the wide gate. And he calls his disciples to enter the narrow gate, which really is Jesus himself. A narrow and difficult way as opposed to the broad way that leads to destruction. Jesus says, enter the narrow gate. He then warns about listening to false prophets dressed in sheep's clothing, that one must be discerning and understand who they are by discerning their fruit. And you discern their fruit by knowing God's word. Do they bear good fruit? Do they bear biblical fruit? Do they bear fruit of the spirit? Or is it bad fruit? Then he talks about two trees. Good tree only bears good fruit because really the root of that tree is good and in good soil. Which is, again is Christ. But a bad tree can only bear bad fruit. And that way leads to destruction. So who is shaping you? The good tree or the bad tree? Jesus then warns of false professions, false belief, saying that not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the heavenly Father. So these are warnings. They're calls to get his disciples to really grasp hold of what he's been teaching in this sermon, to grasp hold of these things and to understand what he is saying. He calls his disciples to be cautious, to rightly judge, to seek Christ, who is the narrow gate, who calls faithful shepherds with good fruit, who train their flock to call on Christ the Lord, to love him and obey him, the great shepherd of the sheep. And that leads to this concluding warning, 
that the only hope of living the life of the Sermon on the Mount is to have your house, that is your life, built on the solid foundation of the rock of Christ. Now true wisdom, the beginning of wisdom, is the fear of God. It is again looking to Christ. It is building upon that foundation. The whole, only hope is having your foundation on Christ, who is the rock. And he who is truly wise will fear God, build on the foundation of Christ the rock, and who will then be able to face the trials of life. Now it's also helpful to get a fuller picture of the parallel passage of this text in Luke 6:46, which is, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, deep laid the foundations on the rock. And when the flood rose and the stream beat vehemently against the house, it could, it could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing, okay, those are two key things here, hear my sayings and does them, but he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Okay, so it gives a little bit different picture, a little different perspective. Okay, digging down deep into the soil to build the foundation on the rock. And we understand that if anybody's ever built anything, you want a good foundation for your house. And so you dig down into that soil. You build that foundation on the rock rather than the fool who has no foundation. The wise man recognizes Jesus as Lord. He is master and listens and obeys the master as the fruit of his faith. It is truly a demonstration, an example of a proper response to Christ. Faith and obedience and a false response to Christ. Unbelief and lack of obedience. He does nothing. Okay? One who hears and obeys, one who hears but does not do anything, does not obey. So let's get closer into the text, our text for today, and mine from the jewels that are contained within because there are some great things here. First, we must note that these men who build these houses are similar, and the houses are similar. The men had similar desires. They desired to build a house. And... They had a similar desire to have a house in a particular location where floods might indeed rage. Okay? We, we can understand that. We want to build a house next to a stream and watch the stream and hear that stream and all of that, right? So you, you can understand that. So here's these two guys. They decide to build their house along the stream, if you will, where floods might indeed rage. We can imagine that they looked quite similar in appearance, these houses, at least from the ground up. But the key was under the house. The foundations of these houses were very different. As long as things were, went relatively well, okay, as long as things went relatively well, the difference couldn't be seen. However, once trials came, rain, floods, wind, then the differences could be immediately seen. One stood the test and the other collapsed. The wise man, because of his faith in the rock, which is Christ, knew that he must build upon him. And what does that look like? It looks like in verse 24, hearing the sayings of Christ, okay, look at verse 24, hearing these sayings of Christ that he has given in his sermon and 
doing them. That's the wise man. You see, the wise man acts. But the wise man also acts thoughtfully. Because he has been trained by the master, the Lord, he is able to observe with wisdom that there will be rain that comes. And there will be floods that come. And there's going to be wind that comes and tears against the house. It is coming. Rain, floods, and wind. It's coming. And he prepares for that by hearing the master and doing the work. Building the foundation. He lives the life and vision that Christ gives really in the sermon here. And that begins with the Beatitudes. It begins with humility of oneself. That the wise man is really poor in spirit. He doesn't think highly of himself. The wise man is poor in spirit, is humble about himself. He knows that he needs instruction. He knows that he needs the master's instruction to build on that foundation. He, he is humbled about himself. He understands his failings and his sins. And he mourns over these things. He knows that he is a weak man. He knows that he must trust in the Lord. He's meek and seeks after the Lord's way. You see, the wise man of God is prepared for the trials of life, prepared by the trials of life by Christ. By Christ. He's teaching here about the trials of life, and he's teaching here in the sermon how to weather those trials, how to weather those storms. He's one that's hungering and thirsting after Christ's righteousness. He's hungering and thirsting after righteousness, true righteousness in his life. This man is merciful to others because he understands the greater depths of his sin and how much he's been forgiven by God. He's prepared for the temptations of life because he understands God's law. The depth of the law and the need to keep it, not just outwardly like the Pharisees do, but inwardly in the depth of our being and the inner man. The wise man of God is prepared for the storms of life because the Spirit has worked in him to give him, to give him the idea and the understanding to selflessly give to the needy, to give alms. That is strength and And change is found in praying earnestly to the Father. All these things are coming from the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, This is the building of the foundation. This is hearing God's word and doing them. The man built on the foundation of the rock is one who disciplines himself and his desires. He's able to fast. He is prepared because his eyes are single-mindedly fixed upon God. That his first thought is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, as we think about and reflect on the Sermon on the Mount, all those things that I've just been listing are all out of the Beatitudes and all the different passages of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And if you're connecting those dots, we might be sitting here thinking, okay, man, I don't do those things perfectly. I still sin. I have sinful thoughts. I struggle with all these things. I desire these things, but I fall so short. Anybody like that? You know, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, whoa, I fall so short of these things. That's good. (laughs) Okay? That means you're being poor in spirit. You're having a right attitude towards yourself because in your own strength, you're right. You're not able to keep these things. Ask yourself, 
As you look at the sermon, as you look at these things, as you're contemplating building upon the foundation, ask yourself, what is your trajectory? Where are you pointed? Where are you going? It's not that you're perfect, but is your desire righteousness? Do you desire righteousness like that of James Guthrie, who can stand there on the grass market knowing that he's about to be hung for his faith and preach what he just preached? What we just heard him say to the people. Do you long to be like that? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness, though you know that you fall short? And remember, it's hungering and thirsting. That means you're not full yet, right? You're hungering and thirsting. You're on the way to being filled. Do you have that hunger and thirst within you for righteousness' sake? The Lord is calling his disciples to be facing and moving in the right direction. Going through the narrow gate, which is Christ alone, and it's a very narrow gate. It's not Buddha, it's not Muhammad and Jesus. It's Jesus alone. Jesus is the gate. He's the door. You have to enter through him. Are you listening to what he says and doing it? Isn't, it isn't just hearing Jesus and saying, oh, that's nice. Oh, those are nice moral teachings here. Which there have been many people that, you know, if they're going to latch on to something, they're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount and Scripture and have that as a, a place to live because it's just good moral teaching. That's not what Jesus is talking. He doesn't want moralism. Okay? He's not bringing us to moralism. He's saying, do you believe this? Obey me. Walk in my way. Right? This is exactly what John says. John, the disciple John, the apostle John, in 1 John 1, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we don't walk in his way, right? We lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 1, 6. Second chapter of 1 John, he says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And John says the same thing. In the Gospel of John, right? He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that we're sinless, right? Just the opposite. That we're humble about ourselves, and admit our sins, and confess, and repent of them when we do sin. John goes on to say, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, right? He knows that we're going to sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one that satisfied the wrath of the Father against sin on our behalf. It's repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Acts 20, as he meets with the Ephesian, the Ephesian elders. And it's not that obedience saves us. You know, don't, that's not what I'm saying here. It's not that obedience saves us. That's not what's being said. But rather, that true faith demonstrates itself in obedience. Obedience flows out of true faith. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's what James says. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Right? Or faith without works is dead. Okay? 
as Paul says in Ephesians, we're called to do good works, that he is prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. And so because of that foundation of faith and obedience and repentance and humility towards oneself, then because of that strength, that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit in a disciple's life, he is able to face the storms of life. He's able to face the storms when they rage against him. When disappointment rains down on the wise man, when hard circumstances and loss rain down on him, talking about the wise man, right? Here, then because of that strength that comes through the Holy Spirit, he is able to stand on the rock which is Christ. Okay? When floods come and worldliness seems to rise up around us and threatens to overwhelm us, right? You ever feel overwhelmed by the flood that's around us? You know, all the insane wickedness that's around us is amazing. You know, it's just everywhere. Okay? When those floods rise up around us, we are able to stand firm on the foundation rock, which is Christ. We stand firm on Him. That's how we get through those things. It's by Christ alone. And when the winds blow very strong, and the devil is roaring around us like a roaring lion, and we feel the attacks of the devil, then we are able to stand firm on the foundation rock, which is Christ, because we have dug deep, and we're built on the rock. But we must be built on the rock. To withstand those things. You know, when we go through those trials and those hard times, we're enduring the chastening of the Lord. And chastening the discipline of the Lord is a good thing. It's not discipline like, you did this and whack. It's disciplining us to grow us into greater Christ-likeness. Hebrews 12 talks about that. Discipline and chastening of the Lord. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord when trials come upon you, when the floods rise up against you, when the rain comes and the wind comes. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there? Whom a father does not chasten, does not discipline, to shape us, to grow us. And so when the storms come against our house, they reveal where we need to have repairs. Right? When the storm comes against your house or it's raining heavy or something like that, and all of a sudden your roof starts leaking, right? You know that there's something wrong up there and it needs to be taken care of. And that's the same with our lives. When the storms come, the rain comes, and the wind comes, and we get rocked a little bit, we know where we need work, where we need to repent, where we need to repair things, right? And that's a good thing, because that's bringing us into greater Christ-likeness. As we repent, and we live by faith, and we trust in His sovereignty to see us through those things. What about the foolish man that built upon the sand? What is he like? The foolish man may have the same desire as the wise man. He may even look a lot like the wise man in many ways. But he is one that wants the easy way. He wants the easy way. He doesn't want to do all that work of digging into the ground to build the foundation upon the rock. Well, that just takes too long. It's too much work. We're just going to put up this house really quickly. Put it right on the ground. 
He's the type of person that says, just tell me what to believe, okay? All right, so the creeds, the confessions, Jesus is Lord, okay, yeah, I got that. That's good. Yeah, that's what I believe. Right? But he doesn't put his time in and think about it. He's not contemplating how these things apply to his life. He doesn't take the time with God's word or struggle in prayer with God. He doesn't want to think about things theologically. It just takes too much time. I'm a busy man. You see, these are comfort and ease Christians who spend any of their time in the Bible focused on simply the promises of God. Not the, not the texts of God that bring and open up our heart to Him. Okay? They just want to talk about and spend time on the promises, the benefits, the comforts, because they like the benefits of salvation and of heaven. They don't really understand why salvation is there, why heaven is there, why hell is there. They don't understand their sin and the need for cross, but they don't want to go to hell. They do know that. They don't understand the depths of their sin, that their sin goes to their very core, their heart, their mind, to their fingertips. That it permeates every aspect of our being. They may say that they're sinners, but they don't see themselves as really all that bad. These are people that love the promises of Christ about forgiveness and about going to heaven and his love for people and all of those things, but they don't necessarily love Jesus himself. They don't love Jesus Christ, but only what he offers. And that's a big difference. That's a big difference. They're in it for what Christ can give them. Heaven and a pass from hell, and they'll rest on signing a card at a revival service. And that's where their confidence is, is in that card. Not in Christ. They're fair-weather Christians, okay? When the storm comes and things begin to get stormy and windy and the floodwaters rise, they're not resting on the foundation rock, and so they'll only go so far as a Christian. They don't have that root, like the seed that's planted in the good soil that brings forth fruit. Instead... They're that seed that fell on the rocky soil that sprang up quickly. But when the sun came out, they got scorched and withered away because there was no root in the good soil, which is Christ. They only go so far, and then they abandon ship. They'll say, yeah, I tried that Christian stuff. I tried Jesus once for a while, but it didn't work. Or some trial has come into their life, and they blame God for it. And they point their finger at God. They're like Job's wife. Curse God and die. Or when rain and floods and wind come, when tough things happen in life, they can't stand because they have no foundation. They're built on sand that is eroded away. Their faith was not built on the rock. A great example in Scripture of this is the rich young ruler that we have in Matthew 19. Right? He wanted the benefits that Jesus offered. He came to Jesus and he said, what must I do for? What do you say? Eternal life. Right? What must I do? Right? Jesus tells them. He says, keep the commandments. 
And the rich young ruler says, I've kept them all from my youth. I've done it all. I must have eternal life. And then Jesus says, well, go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Right? So he was only willing to go so far because he went away sad. He went away sad. He went away sad because he had great possessions. He would only follow Christ so far. He didn't want Christ. He wanted the benefits that Christ offered. He wasn't interested in Jesus, but only in what Jesus had to offer. He didn't want to do the work of obedience and of digging into the soil of his life and building his foundation on the rock, which is Christ. He just wanted the stuff that Jesus would give him. He didn't want the cross. He didn't want sacrifice. He didn't really want Jesus, did he? You see, he didn't understand his true need. He didn't understand his true need. Jesus did. But he had he wasn't sorrowful over his idolatry of all his possessions. He wasn't hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which means that he wasn't poor in spirit or mourning, mourning over his sin. He wasn't merciful to the poor because he didn't understand how merciful God is. Because he really didn't care about that. He just wanted the benefits that God could pass out to him. He didn't love Jesus, and it showed because he didn't keep his commandments. To go sell all you have and come follow me. Now, storms will come in your life. What will happen? Are you prepared for these storms by being anchored to the rock? That's the question that Jesus is getting at here. Are you prepared for these storms that are going to come by being anchored to the rock? Are you prepared for the storm if Hillary or Donald Trump, either one, gets elected? Right? Or will that rock your world? Is that going to rock your world? So you're just like, ah, what are we going to do? Everything's going to fall apart. My whole world's coming down. Is that going to rock your world so that you forget about Christ, the rock? You see, if your foundation is built on the rock, then you know right here in this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, do not worry. Right? Do not worry. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's what Jesus says. Right? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Don't worry. Do not worry about tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. So how do you prepare for life's storms? What does Jesus say right here? Hear His word and obey this word of His. Okay? Hear His sermon. Hear what He's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Hear what he's teaching in all of Scripture and obey. And obey that. Are you obeying right now? You know, that's the question. Are you obeying right now? Because if you're not obeying right now, if you have hidden sin and you're not dealing with it, you're not going to stand when the storms hit. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself and think, oh, I'll obey then. But I'm harboring this little sin in here because I really like this pet sin of mine that I want to keep and cuddle. 
okay? But I'll, you know, if trials come and all of that, then I'll, I'll take care of it then. I'll be ready then. No, you won't. You won't. Repent of your sin now. Follow Christ now. Look at him now. He's the rock. That's really what Jesus is calling his disciples to in this sermon and in, in these warnings. He's saying, take the narrow gate, follow the difficult path, take fruit from the true shepherd, and, form, and, and from good trees, have a right testimony, and build on the foundation rock, which is Jesus Christ alone. There is no other. But when you do that, and you prepare in this way, by being in his word, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, then when the storms come, you can be like James Guthrie. You can stand at the gallows and say, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and one of the most unworthy men ever who ever preached the gospel, but I do believe that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. You can stand there and say, Oh, my Holy One, I shall not die, but live. Because you're resting in the foundation, which is Christ. And you can say, Now let your servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen your salvation. You see, our confidence comes because we're in that rock. Our confidence in saying something like that is because we're in the rock, which is Christ, and Him alone. When the floods come, continue to obey. Continue to find your strength in God's word. When your faith is tested, obey Jesus rather than man. Okay, Fear God rather than man. Don't compromise. Don't compromise this. Don't compromise this. This is our king's word to us. The covenanters had it right. This is the king's word to us. And all the earthly kings and all the earthly prelates and presidents and congressmen and all of that need to submit to this word. They do. Rest in Christ. Don't compromise. Do you have rock or sand as your advocate when you sin? Do you have rock or sand as your advocate when you sin? Rock, solid, sure, assurance, or shifting sand, which offers no assurance at all. There is no assurance in shifting sand. Go to the beach, dig a hole, watch the water fill it in, and the sandcastle collapse. There is no assurance there. Who is your advocate when you sin? Jesus or someone or something else? Who do you flee to? Christ or someone else? Some other comforter? You see, there is no other comforter that will do what Jesus does and has done. If you're in Christ, if you're pointed in the right direction, if your trajectory is right, and it's going the way of Christ, if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, then remember these promises. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So ask yourself, do you love him? Do you love Christ? Not just his benefits, but do you love Christ himself? Are you thankful for what he's done through his sinless life? 
through his death on the cross, through his atoning for sinners, his resurrection, defeating death, and his ascension where he rules right now and has all authority. Even though sometimes it doesn't look like it, he has all authority, even over Hillary and Donald and every other politician that's out there. He has authority over them. They may not recognize it, but he does, and we need to recognize that. And that you don't need to worry or fear when you're resting on the rock, which is Christ. You love that Jesus. That Jesus who has all authority, that is sovereign over all of these things. If so, then rejoice that your foundation is on the rock, which is Christ. Rejoice in that. Now if not, if you're in doubt about these things, then repent of your sin. This is the day. Repent of your sin. Confess your sins to him and cry out to him, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And look to him, build on Jesus, and understand that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. He's the only rock. He's the only gate. He's the narrow way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. It's Jesus alone. But he is the rock you need to build your foundation on. And he will help you weather any storm. At any time in the history of the world, he is the one that helps his sheep through the storm. That helps the house stand when the rains come, when the floods come, and when the the wind tears at the house. He will give you strength to live for him. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus came to save sinners. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the good gift of this, your word. We thank you for the gift of your Son, who is our foundation, who is our rock in which we can build the lives that you have given us. And Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see that and have hearts that do not worry. But look to you. And look to you alone. And know that you can help us and you will strengthen us to weather any storm that comes. Lord, strengthen us and plant our feet firmly on the rock. That we may have a sure foundation in our lives to the depth of our being. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' powerful and holy name. Gloria students this week learned about Lot and his family. Lot and his family were citizens of Sodom and were taken captive in a war after a war between kings. But God in his mercy had mercy on Lot and he equipped his uncle Abram with some men to go and rescue them, to rescue his family and bring back him and all his possessions. In the process, Abram is met and blessed by Melchizedek. Melchizedek 
was the king of Salem and the high priest of God. Let's read Genesis 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered our enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. There are many things packed into the fact that Melchizedek brought bread and wine to Abram. The New Testament identifies Melchizedek as a type of Christ. Salem, where he was king, means peace. And he brought to Abram and his family the peace of bread and wine. The bread and wine were given to Abram as a confirmation of the covenant that God had made with Abram and how he has established him uh, and to bless him and to give him a promise of a great nation and to give him innumerable descendants. And the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And that's what God wants to grant to us at our salvation. At our salvation, God ascribes to us our justification, which is his righteousness. Melchizedek not only offers bread and wine, but he offers himself for our salvation. Bread and wine, the same elements that we have before us now, are the same salvation is are also the same salvation that Melchizedek has for us. Who can come and receive this gift? Who is it for? The bread and wine is given to the children of Abraham, given as reminders of the covenant that he has established with us. The children of Abraham are marked out by their faith. That is what distinguishes the children of Abraham from the children of the devil. So here is the bread. Come and chew it with faith. Here is the wine. Come, drink it by faith. Faith in Christ Jesus. Invited to this table are all who have been baptized and belong to Christ and his and are under the authority of his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine together, we acknowledge that we are sinners apart from Christ, except for the sovereign mercy of God, and that we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. This is Christ's body broken for us. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.